this talk um, is called On Emptiness, which refers to the, uh, the Chula Sunyata Sutta, the, the shorter discourse on emptiness that is found in the, the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the middle-length discourses. But before going on to that, I think it might be helpful to just look at some of the questions that might still be arising from what we have been looking at so far. In other words, these four eights. And I found in the last days in uh, teaching or trying to teach what these poems are about, um, that they've also had quite um, an effect, quite a, an impact in a way, on uh, the meditation I've been doing. I find that they constantly somehow remind me to settle back into a space, a perspective that um, is somewhat less entangled with the thought processes and the views and the opinions and the beliefs that I'm rather prone to have. Um, and I find that there's a sort of a, a shock therapy quality to these uh, kinds of verses. Uh, again, they don't explain anything. They don't tell me to do anything. But they somehow evoke very powerfully, not only through the, uh, the actual words and sentences, but also, I feel, through um, the poetry um, that this kind of text is speaking as much in terms of a, a form of language as it is in terms of a, a particular content of ideas. And, and this has, has led me to uh, ponder whether the idea is in fact literally to live a life without having any views or opinions, which could certainly be interpreted from the text. Or does it perhaps mean that one should try to learn not to identify with one's views and opinions in the way that one so often does, and thereby to treat them more lightly? I wonder if, in the same way as we talked yesterday about these two models of, of freedom or liberation or salvation in the Pali Canon, one which suggests that certain states of mind literally need to be negated, deleted, uprooted, cut off like palm stumps, or whether that is perhaps too extreme or too idealized um, a, a, a notion, one that I think sits very uneasily with how we currently understand the nature of desire, of fear, of emotions. And perhaps it's more a question 
uh, of not identifying with these things, not indulging these things, somehow having a more ironic relationship to such emotions, a more ironic relationship to one's views and opinions. And I mentioned yesterday as an, exa- an example of this alternative view of what it means to be free that we might consider the texts that describe the Buddha's interactions with Mara, the, 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 the devil, the demonic. And the passage I had in mind, or one of the passages I had in mind, comes at the very end of a text called the Padana Sutta, uh, sometimes translated as the, the striving, and it's an account, a very early account of the Buddha's you know, doing ascetic meditation by the Naranjara river and then being approached by Mara and somehow tempted, as it were. And at the end of that little um, episode, um, we find the following verses. Mara has now, as it were, withdrawn from talking to the Buddha and he's thinking to himself. He says... For seven years I have followed the Buddha step by step. I have not obtained an opportunity against the awakened one who possesses mindfulness. A bird circled a stone which looked like fat, thinking, oh, maybe we'll find something soft here, something sweet. Not finding anything sweet the bird went away from there. Like a crow attacking a rock and becoming despondent, I attacking Gautama am becoming despondent and will go away. Now not only is this, I think, a very rich metaphor, but the opening uh, phrase Uh, suggests uh, quite explicitly that although uh, the Buddha has become the awakened one, however we understand that, that has not prevented Mara from following him step by step for seven years, it says. And I've not obtained any opportunity, says Mara, um, against this one who is so mindful. Now this is a way of speaking, I think, that is using symbolic or mythological language to describe um, the, 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 the nature of the Buddha's own experience. It's telling that the tradition feels a need to make Mara into something rather separate. But... Nowadays, I think it's difficult to understand this as anything but um, uh, mythical discourse. And it's very useful. It's very helpful, I think, um, in that it allows the imagination to engage with these ideas rather than purely the intellect. So we already have the idea that the Buddha may be awakened and he may, in fact, have overcome Mara conquered Mara, which is one of the standard uh, tropes used to describe the Buddha. But 
even though he has conquered Mara, that does not mean that Mara's not around or Mara's gone away. Mara, of course, stands for grasping, clinging, craving, views, opinions, all of these things. In other words, one can somehow um, uh, transcend these states of mind, these feelings, these emotions, while they are still just as present as they always were. And the metaphor is that of a bird circling a stone that looks like a piece of fat. In other words, you can picture one of these rooks seeing some tasty morsel of somebody's you know, lump of brown rice that somebody dropped off their plate and thinking, well, wow, food. But then when it dives down to it and starts pecking away, it finds, in fact, it had made a mistake. In fact, it's just a piece of stone. And so not finding anything sweet the crow flies away. And Mara says, I'm like a crow attacking rock, becoming despondent, and I too will go away. So the Buddha's freedom, or our freedom really, is not a question of somehow deleting some aspect of our body or mind or experience, but rather coming to relate to it in a very different way, adopting a very different perspective on what's going on. And this, I feel, is um, in some ways a much more um, a helpful way of talking about freedom uh, as really a transformation in how we relate to the world rather than... Uh, eliminating some parts of our mind or some parts of our body or brain that we don't like. So could it be that just like greed and hatred and so on, that views and opinions are uh, inscripted or encoded in the body and the nervous system and the brain? Um, it's worth remembering that in, in classical Buddhist uh, psychology, um, views, opinions are treated as being of the same order as greed and hatred. There's not a distinction between emotions and intellect. And in fact, I remember one translator translated ditti uh, rather than opinions, but opinionatedness. And I think, you know, we can see the difference. It's not just the, the abstract fact that you hold views. The problem here really is that you become opinionated. You, you identify and invest your sense of who you are in certain views and opinions. So in this sense, um, holding views and opinions... Um, is simply what the brain and the nervous system does in the kind of um, linguistic, uh, cultural environment that we live in with others. Uh, just as the organism generates attractions and aversions and fears. It's simply a part of what uh, human beings do. So in other words, we don't have to demonize these things. 
just to recognize that that's what goes on. So it's not a question of, of, of getting rid of them, of views, of destroying them in some way, which I think is impossible. But it's about learning to live with them in a more mindful, sensitive, and I would also say ironic way. In other words, we don't take them as seriously as we may have done in the past. Perhaps another way of looking at it would be not to think that the poet was talking literally of, of, of getting rid of all views, but recognizing that one can never be certain that one's views and opinions are true. We just don't know enough that our, our bodies, our minds are simply uh, too limited to ever have final definitive access to what is the case in the world, what is true or truth. So we notice that we have views, we have opinions, and we maybe regard them as, as good views, right views, opinions. But at the same time, we're sufficiently honest with ourselves to recognize that we can never be entirely certain. We cannot be certain at all that these views are in fact true. Now to illustrate this, I'd like to give an example. Um, probably most of us have had the experience of answering a knock on the door and there are standing out suit outside two bright-eyed, beaming, well-dressed young people who are advocates of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if one is... Um, foolhardy enough to engage in a conversation with these people <laughs> or their Buddhist equivalents let's add <laughs> you, what, is, what is for me utterly frustrating about this conversation is that it's not a conversation um, the, the Jehovah's Witness um, is so certain that their beliefs are true uh, that there's no way you can actually engage in a reasonable dialogue. You can object, and, and then you'll get cited some verse from the Old Testament or something. You, you just don't get anywhere. So that, to me, would be an example of, um, uh, of an exchange in which there's really no possibility of conversation, there's no possibility of dialogue, and what that means is there's not really any possibility of moving on, uh, of, of embarking on a, a journey of mutual refinement and enhancement of what we understand and believe. Because one person, one part of the dialogue, has, has already decided that they have all of the answers to everything. And yet it's a very different experience uh, to have a conversation with a friend or what we would call an open-minded person in which we sense that there's a total openness to examining anything. And this, of course, I think has its origins perhaps in, in Socrates and such figures um, who are not interested in, as it were, imposing a dogma or a doctrine but are interested in seeing how far we can go 
through reason, through discussion, through examination of evidence, in such a way that both of us might arrive at some further insight, and both of us might then discard or modify the views and the opinions that we held. And I think in this way we can perhaps see what the poet was getting at a little bit more concretely. At least this is how I would understand it. But I feel that um, also uh, when we look at the text which I've translated as Tukachanagota, um, we get the same idea. Uh, in the second part of the, of the uh, passage, the first part says, by and large, Kachana, this world relies on the duality of it is and it, and it, and it, it is not. And then it goes on. But the second paragraph, I think, touches quite directly on this point. It says, by and large, Kachana, this world is bound to its prejudices and habits. But such a one, in other words, one who sees with complete intelligence the world as it arises and the world as it ceases, such a one does not get caught up in the habits, fixations, prejudices or biases of the mind. No, does not get caught up in. It doesn't say doesn't have any habits, fixations, prejudices or biases, doesn't get caught up in them. He is not fixated on myself, me. He does not doubt that when something is occurring, it is occurring, and when it has come to an end, it has come to an end. Again, it suggests a kind of deep matter-of-factness, an ability to just be completely mindful and aware and present with what's going on without overlaying that with my wants and my fears, my desires, my dislikes. And then the last sentence says, his knowledge is independent of others. This is this famous phrase, aparapachaya. His knowledge is independent of others. It's not something he's saying or thinking or believing because that's what his guru has told him or what some sacred text has said. But he's come to this understanding purely on the basis of his or her, of course, own first-hand awareness, experience. And then the Buddha concludes, it's in these respects that his vision is complete. Or right view is the technical word. And then in conclusion, the text says, the Tathagata, which means the Buddha, reveals the Dhamma from a center that avoids both dead ends. The dead end of, it's like this, or it's not like that. In other words, an opinionatedness but rather a center, or a, the word is marjama, not marjama pradipa. It's center or middle, without the use of the word middle way or central path. He just uses the word the center. And the Dharma is revealed from this center. And I'd like to think of that again in 
terms of how in meditation we seek to somehow be centered. Centered, balanced, as the poet put it, in such a way that we're not thrown off course by this or that is or is not, like, dislike, etc. Now, although this text, uh, the Kachanagota Sutta, the discourse to Kachana, does not actually use the word emptiness, nonetheless, it is that text, the one we've just looked at, that is the basis, the canonical basis, for Nagarjuna's philosophy of emptiness. It's the only text that Nagarjuna quotes as a basis for his philosophy, which is striking. He doesn't cite a Mahayana text. He cites this text, which is found in the Pali Canon. But already, I think, the language or the word I've used is misleading. I've said the philosophy of emptiness, as though it's a sort of uh, Buddhist theory or doctrine. But although undeniably that is what the idea of emptiness became, it became a key concept within a philosophical theory, my hunch is that before it was used in that sense, it was just another way of talking about solitude that emptiness and solitude are really much the same thing. We find a passage, um, again I don't have the exact citation, but it's in the Pali Canon somewhere, where uh, Shunyata is called the Maha Purusha Vihara. Vihara means dwelling. Purusha means person, and maha means great, that emptiness is the dwelling of the great person. It's the dwelling. And this is the key term, viharati, to, li- to dwell, or we could say to live. Either would work, in fact. So emptiness, therefore, is not something that we strive to know, It's not something that stands for ultimate truth, which is the case in um, later Buddhist dogmatic philosophy. Emptiness is the ultimate reality of everything. And and by understanding emptiness, by gaining direct non-conceptual insight into the absence of inherent existence, emptiness, then you'll be enlightened. That's not how the word is used at all. Uh, the word is, is used to describe a space in which you can dwell or live. And this brings us back to the distinction I've been making all along, that uh, what we're concerned with here is not finding the truth, but engaging in a task, rather than truth, task, rather than Believing something, doing something. So 
the idea of emptiness in the earliest sources is that it is presented as a challenge to, to live in a certain way. Can you live and dwell emptily? And to live emptily is to live in solitude. The, 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 there's an aloneness, there's an absence of what somehow interrupts your own solitude. And this brings us quite um, uh, effortlessly, I suppose, into the sutta itself on emptiness, um, which I will read in its entirety, and then we'll look at some of the of the ideas and try to figure out the basic structure of its uh, argument. But first, let's just listen to it. The teacher was once living at Savati in the eastern garden of Megara's mother's villa. As evening fell, the good Ananda emerged from seclusion and approached him. He greeted him, sat down to one side and said, You were once living in Sakya, sir, among your kinsfolk in the town of Nagaraka. It was there that I heard you say from your own lips, Now I mainly live by dwelling in emptiness. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, Ananda. Then, as now, do I mainly live by dwelling in emptiness. In being empty of elephants, cattle and horses, gold and silver, crowds of women and men, there is one thing alone due to which this villa is not empty. This group of beggars, us. So too, in not being aware of villages or people, there is one thing alone due to which a beggar focuses his mind. Awareness of wilderness. His heart rejoices in that awareness of wilderness is made radiant and calm by it, is dedicated to it. He knows, with none of the anxieties due to being aware of villages or people, there is one thing alone due to which I am prone to a degree of anxiety, awareness of wilderness. This state of awareness is empty of any awareness of villages and people. There is one thing alone due to which it is not empty, awareness of wilderness. Thus, he regards it as empty of what is not there. And of what remains, he knows this is what's here. So is this entry into emptiness in accord with what happens, undistorted and pure. Then, no longer aware of wilderness, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, 
awareness of the earth's expanse. Just as a bull's hide loses its wrinkles when stretched by numerous pegs, so too by ignoring all the hills and valleys, rivers and ravines, lands covered with tree stumps and thorns, the jagged lines of hills, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, awareness of the earth's expanse. Then no longer aware of the earth's expanse, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, awareness of unbounded space. Then no longer aware of unbounded space, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, awareness of unbounded consciousness. No longer aware of unbounded consciousness, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, awareness of nothing. No longer aware of nothing, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, awareness of of neither being aware nor unaware. And no longer aware of being aware nor unaware, One thing alone focuses that beggar's mind, an unthemed meditation of the heart. His heart rejoices in that unthemed meditation, is made radiant and calm by it, is dedicated to it. He knows with none of the anxieties due to being aware of neither being aware nor unaware, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. Then he realizes an unthemed meditation of the heart is conditioned and contrived. And whatever is conditioned and contrived is impermanent and subject to cessation. In knowing and seeing this, thus, his heart is freed from the influences of cupidity, becoming, and nescience. I would actually translate that now as the influences of cupidity, ambition, and foolishness. In this freedom, the insight dawns, this is freedom. He knows Birth is over. The good life has been lived. What has to be done has been done. There will be no more repetition. With none of the anxieties due to those influences, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. This state of awareness is empty of those influences. That which is not empty is this, the six sense fields of a living body. So he regards it as empty of what is not there. And of what remains he knows this is what's here. So is this, em- so is this entry into emptiness in accord with what happens 
undistorted and pure. Those wanderers and priests of the past, the present or the future, who have dwelt, are dwelling or will dwell in pure, unsurpassed emptiness, all of them have dwelt, are dwelling or will dwell in this very emptiness. So should you train yourselves. Let us live in this emptiness. This is what the teacher said. Delighted, the good Ananda rejoiced in his words. Um, Now, if you found that sometimes a little bit repetitive, remember that that this is a, a... a pared down translation. This is one third the length of the sutta that you'll find in other translations. Um, and I'd read that sutta uh, at least two or three times, I think, or more. And like so many Buddhist suttas, you get bogged down in this tiresome repetition. And to such a degree, I feel, that you actually find it difficult to follow the line of the argument. So, what I've done here, and again, this is a sort of principle of a secular Buddhist translation, if you like, is to banish repetition ruthlessly. Just get rid of it. There's still a little bit left, which I feel is necessary to sustain and and understand the argument, but as much as possible, just cut it out, get rid of it. So, what is clear here um, uh, is this idea that um, the, the, Buddha, 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 the Buddha repeats, now I mainly live by dwelling in emptiness. Um, I should point out that in Pali, the same word... Viharati or viharena um, is, I'm translating as live in one instance and dwell in the next. It's the same word though. Um, Now I mainly dwell by dwelling in emptiness sounds a little um, redundant. So let's think of it as living and dwelling. Again, living and dwelling are such foundational words in any language um, that I think often we don't really perhaps fully grasp their, their sense, what it means to live somewhere. It's something we do. How do we dwell on this earth, dwell or live on this retreat? And of course meditation is very much a dwelling. It's, it's a way of being in this world of settling, of living, of dwelling. And it's so close to us, this idea of dwelling or living. It's so intimately tied up with how we feel about ourselves that it's very difficult actually to articulate it, to describe it. It's, it's, it's abundantly obvious. We know exactly what it means. But once we try to define it or tease it apart... Uh, words quickly fail. We don't find the words for it. Um, It reminds me of what St. Augustine said about time. 
He said, as, no, as long as nobody asks me about the nature of time, I know perfectly well what it is. As soon as I'm asked, what is time, I don't have a clue. And it's the same with life, living, dwelling, and probably everything at one level. But I find these words particularly uh, evocative and powerful because they're tapping into something very, uh, very visceral, very immediate. Whereas if you think of emptiness as something which you have to understand non-conceptually, you've turned it into the object of some kind of analysis or inquiry or um, investigation. That's a very different relationship to the idea than uh, what's suggested here, which is this is a, a way of living, a way of dwelling on earth. And um, the, examples, the, the, the example the Buddha uses is the one that's immediately to hand. They're sitting in a villa that belongs to a fellow called Megara, and, well, the mother of a fellow called Megara. And not, I forget who Megara was, a minor character in the Pali Canon. And it's the, it's the place that the Buddhist community had in Savati in addition to the Jetta's Grove, which is the famous place. It was given by Visaka, was it? Oh, okay. Thank you. It was given to him by Visaka. And it's sometimes translated as the palace, uh, the park and the palace, but I think that's a little grandiose. I don't think there's any suggestion that it had that uh, standard of living, as it were. And I, again, in a secular interpretation, I like to downgrade these rather royalist terms to villa and garden. It seems to be perhaps a little bit more historically accurate. So in other words, he, know, he says, look, we're in this villa, in this garden. There's no elephants, there's no cattle, horses, gold, silver, crowds of men and women. There's just us. In other words... Um, there is one thing alone due to which this villa is not empty. Typical Buddhist circumlocution. In other words, this place is not empty because we're here. But do you not want to update that and then just say, there's just us here? There's just us here. We could, yeah, I could. But that's another matter. One could strip this down even further and maybe turn it into a t totally idiomatic English text, but I haven't, I haven't got there yet. <laughs> so bear with me. I tell you, this is really rather different to the other translations already. There's only so much, only so far one can go step at a time. So he establishes at this point what it means for a place to be empty. It means that certain things are not here, the empty of those things, but in when those things are gone, that focuses your mind on what is here, namely us guys, those of us in this room. But then he takes that as the starting point for then exploring a whole uh, sequence of meditative states. So he then um, talks of uh, a beggar, a monk, um, 
who leaves the villages, the Savati, the Megara's mother's palace or villa, and goes off into the forest, into the wilderness. The word is forest, I think. could also be translated as that. And this, of course, is the standard move of a, uh, of a wanderer. Um, to go into more intensive practice, you leave behind the hustle and the bustle of the world and you go into the woods. You go into the wilderness. Um, and the same logic is then applied to that. With none of the anxieties due to being aware of villages or people, there is only one thing alone due to which I'm, propon- pro- I'm prone to a degree of anxiety, and that is awareness of the wilderness. In other words, we're never entirely stepping out of anxiety. The word is sometimes translated as disturbance, but I feel personally anxiety works well here. And we're never free of anxiety, as we'll see. Dukkha. Even right through this sequence of meditations, you're always prone to a degree of anxiety. That's simply a given in having a body, is what it states towards the end. So this state of awareness is empty of any awareness of villages and people. There's only one thing due to which it is not empty, awareness of wilderness. And so the emptiness of that you experience in the wilderness is the emptiness of the hustle and the bustle of the world. And of course this is very obviously a move towards solitude. So the more the, the, the emptier your life becomes, the more solitary you become. But it doesn't stop at just your awareness of the natural world, the awareness of wilderness, although you your heart rejoices in that awareness of wilderness, is made radiant and calm by it, and is dedicated to it. And in fact, in all of the following uh, steps, the same long, complicated paragraphs are found with each one. And that's where it gets rather tiresome. So what does he move to next? He then um, moves away from just being aware of the wilderness itself, and he starts to become aware... Um, of the earth's expanse. Um, The word in Pali is simply earth. But given the context, I think that's too general. And the metaphor, the image he gives, makes it quite clear. He says, just as a bull's hide loses its wrinkles when stretched by pegs, so too ignoring all the hills and valleys, da-da-da, one thing alone focuses the beggar's mind. Awareness of the earth's expanse. Now, the traditional commentaries take this as a reference to what is called kasina meditation. A sort of meditation that hasn't yet to take off in the West. I don't know anyone who teaches kasina meditation. There's probably some. Kasina is a thought to have referred to colored discs which you would put in front of you and then you'd focus on that and then close your eyes and then hold your attention on the after image of the colored disc. And that would be the basis for your concentration. Now the commentaries explain that this is what's meant here. I'm not so sure. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what is meant here, but what's quite interesting is to see the sequence of how meditation develops in this particular text, which is quite unusual that it goes this way. But it seems as though first you're simply, as it were, open to the presence of the woodlands, the nature, the wilderness. And then you turn that attention to uh, a, a sense of how how extended and extensive is the surface of the earth. And the image is used as a vast sort of open plain, flat. Again, it's an image of spaciousness. And it's not surprising that from there, the beggar's mind moves to an awareness of unbounded space. And I think with each step, you see the object of awareness becoming that much more more subtle in a way, but very much along a continuity. You know, the, the unclutteredness of the villa, well, that's kind of nice. Like, but then we go into the forest and that's, wow, that's really cool. And then we start reflecting on the spaciousness of the earth. And that leads us to the spaciousness of unbounded space, then unbounded consciousness. You're now aware that it's not just the space that's unbounded, but your consciousness of it. And that then leads, according to here at least, into an awareness of nothing. You no longer have any object of awareness. And that leads to an awareness of neither being aware nor unaware. what's being described here actually are what are called the four immaterial states Um, sometimes they're called the four or the the, the sixth, seventh fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth jhanas Um, Buddhist tradition has a very ambivalent relationship to these immaterial jhanas These uh, immaterial jhanas are understood as um, deep states of mental absorption that occur after you've achieved the first four jhanas or absorptions which are considered to still have a formal object. I'm not going to go into that. You can look them up. But basically when you get to the fourth jhana, At that point, you move into the formless jhanas. What's interesting about this text is the four jhanas are not mentioned. Possibly a Theravada commentator would say, well, you develop those on the basis of the kasina of the earth. But that's not said in the text. We don't know. And I think, once again, as I've mentioned before, it's important to respect the autonomy of the text and not assume that it must somehow be saying what Theravada orthodoxy or some other Buddhist orthodoxy thinks it must mean. But let's just treat the text on its own terms. It's entirely coherent, and we can see the the logic of the development of this argument without having to impose other Buddhist beliefs or views. And then it starts getting a bit strange, no longer aware of being neither aware or unaware, one thing alone focuses that beggar's mind 
an unthemed meditation of the heart. And that is, um, what is it? It's, sometimes this is trans, I mean, it's the three words. Unthemed is nimita, signless, is how it's often translated. Heart is chitta, and meditation, I've actually used, translated the word samadhi. So you could say and the signless concentration of the mind. But I'm actually following Bhikkhu Tanisaro, who translates it as themeless. And again, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, all of the meditations up to this point have had a theme. Infinite, the earth's expanse, infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite uh, nothing, and then neither awareness nor non-awareness. These are all still themes that your meditation, your concentration is focused on a particular object, albeit a very subtle object. It's, it's still themed. But what he's pointing to here is at a certain point you drop the idea of needing a theme or an object or a kind of uh, content. Um, in popular Vipassana circle parlance, this is quite close to what's called choiceless awareness. Awareness that doesn't have a specific theme. And my sense is that this is what's going on here. One gets to a point where one is no longer interested or fulfilled by dwelling in some deep absorption into a particular object and you begin to uh, enjoy you know, just following where your heart leads you in choiceless awareness. The unthemed meditation of the heart and, it, and you become radiant and calm and dedicated to that. Now what's curious at this point is the text shifts. With none of the anxieties due to being aware of neither being aware nor unaware, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. It doesn't say, as it had said in every step up to here, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from an unthemed meditation of the heart. That, that would be logical. But it doesn't do that. It, 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 it slips into the amount of anxiety that comes from having the sense fields of a living body. In other words, it comes right back to being embodied. I mean, this is a very literal translation of the Pali. The six sense fields of a body that is dependent on life. That's what it literally says. But a living body. So after all of this journey through these deep and subtle states of meditation, after all of this uh, enjoyment of... Um, simply following the themeless uh, reflection of your mind, you come back closer and closer to just recognizing that you are embodied and that you in, dwell in the senses. What you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and intuit or know through your, your mind. But it's striking that it's the living body that's the basis for this. Then another strange shift. 
an unthemed meditation of the heart is conditioned and contrived. And whatever is conditioned and contrived is impermanent and subject to cessation. So you drop that as well. And it's in dropping that, in knowing and seeing thus, that one's heart is freed from the influences or the asava of cupidity, which is raga, becoming bhava, nescience, which is avijja. And I think in, in, in ordinary English we'd say something like cupidity or attachment, ambition, wanting to become something, and nescience, let's just say foolishness, silliness, stupidity. And so it's at that point when you, you drop any kind of scheme of meditation that you glimpse the freedom of uh, no longer being driven by what you want, no longer driven by what you want to become, and no longer being tricked and confused by uh, you know, the, the muddledness of your mind. And in this freedom, the insight dawns, this is freedom. And then there's this standard pericope. Birth is over, the good life has been lived, etc., which is just the standard uh, Pali phrase that means, hey, I've made it. (laughs) With none of the anxieties due to those influences of cupidity, of ambition, of foolishness, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. He's not saying I'm free of suffering at all. It's just that my suffering now, my anxiety, my disturbance, is simply what comes with being an embodied creature in this world. So he regards it, so this state of awareness is empty now of those influences, attachment, ambition, foolishness, And that just leaves me with that which is not empty is this, the six sense fields of a living body. So again, I feel we have here um, uh, a rather, um, I I think, very clear account um, of a process that probably reflects that of at least one beggar, person, monk, whatever. Um, And I think what's also interesting is that it it phrases it in a highly idiosyncratic way. This is not the standard description of meditation you'll find, say, in the Satipatthana Sutta or elsewhere. And I think these passages point to the fact that the early Buddhist community was not so invested in, as it were, having... uh, you know, a preconceived notion of the stages of insight, for example, which everybody has to somehow conform to if you do a particular practice, in this case the Mahasi practice. Or if you go to Goenka, then there's another clearly defined set of stages that is the right thing to do. Uh, or what they'll rhetorically claim to be what the Buddha did. I think that's, again authority and dogma coming in and just trying to close things down. What seems to be suggested here, what was suggested, I think, in the poems, is that um, meditation is an open field 
or as Krishnamurti put it, truth is a pathless land. That we can be inspired by these figures, by these texts, but in the end we're going to follow our own process. We're going to find a way that somehow responds to our, our needs and our yearnings, um, our interests. So we'll stop there. And uh, tomorrow, as I said, I'm going to um, explore how these ideas are connected to the Western tradition, our own tradition, uh, starting with the Greek skeptic uh, Pyrrho of Elis. Thanks. Thank you.